As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop Chef Quality Pots and Pans at MadeInCookware.com. Hi, this is Julissa Arce, and in this week's Crooked Conversation, we talk to Hiroshi Motomura, who is a preeminent immigration scholar. He's a professor at the UCLA School of Law, and he's the author of a number of books, including books that are used in law schools all across the country. I was really excited about this conversation because there's been so much attention on the hashtag Abolish ICE. Um, and I was just really interesting to hear from Hiroshi to put some context around where this hashtag came from, what ICE is, what it does, how it's different than Border Patrol, how it's different than where people go apply for their citizenship and green cards, what ICE um, is notorious for doing wrong and where we can go from here. So have a listen. I hope you enjoy it. So thank you, Hiroshi, for joining us on this Cricket Conversation. I am really excited to talk to you about this because like every time we have conversations about it, I feel like I I learn so much from you. Um, And what I want to do is, before we sort of get started on the conversation about abolishing ICE, is to set some context about what ICE is, what it does, where it came from, why it even exists in the first place. So if, if you could tell us or put ICE in context, like when was ICE created and why was it created? Sure. Thanks a lot for having me. This is, a, I think, a very important conversation, an important topic. And I think it is useful to start with where, where I started. Um, ICE has been around for about 15 years, and it was created as part of the reorganization of immigration regulation in the federal government. And that essentially is in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. So folks may recall that after 9-11, there was the uh, concern about um, Homeland Security, as it came to be called, and the department was created. And so that occasion was uh, the occasion to reorganize a lot of the immigration functions in government. And so what happened is that uh, you had different agencies created within DHS. Um, One of them was on the border. It's called Customs and Border Protection. Uh, One of them had to do with giving people – what are called immigration benefits, in other words, citizenship, green cards, um, you know, student um, forms to let people come into the United States as students. That goes to United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, USCIS. Mm-hmm. And then there's something called U.S. Uh, immigration and Customs Enforcement. That's ICE. And so their main jurisdiction is in the interior of the United States. So you have a border agency that's enforcement-oriented. You have an interior agency that's ICE that's enforcement-oriented. And then you have an agency that's supposed to uh, process applications and grant benefits and citizenship and things like that. And that all dates about from about 15 years ago. Um, and uh, it's very much part of the legacy of 9-11. Of course, there's a history before that uh, for so many years, really uh, since the 1940, uh, all these immigration functions uh, were in the Department of Justice. And so when people – sometimes you often hear the initials INS, uh, Immigration Mm -hmm. Naturalization Service. That's where it was before 9-11. And so – 
Uh, that's from about that's from 1940 on up until 2003. One thing that I'm glad you brought up is the fact that there are three distinct agencies within the Department of Homeland Security, and they're supposed to have different jurisdictions and are supposed to have different um, different activities that that they do. And one of the things that I often get very annoyed about is when people confuse. Customs and Border Patrol with ICE, and they use they use them interchangeably. Like, oh, you know, ICE, uh, we we support ICE because they keep our border secure. And it's like, well, ICE doesn't really do that. There, there is Border Patrol that does do that. So I'm glad that we cleared that out. There are two completely different agencies. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to ask you um, about this sort of history of ICE, and you mentioned that this really came about after 9/11, and you know, as an immigrant. 9-11, I feel like, really changed the way that the United States viewed immigrants in this country. Um, and it, and it, from my perspective, that's when it, they really started to um, criminalize immigrants a lot more. And mm -hmm. it came from a standpoint of uh, almost treating immigrants as though we were terrorists. Um, and, and so... Do you do you think that 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 there's some truth to that? That did did nine eleven change the way that the United States viewed immigrants? Yeah, no, I think I think that's a good observation. Um, in the following sense, that nine um, eleven was a point when immigration really gets uh, portrayed in a lot of public media much more heavily as a national security issue, mm -hmm. and that's the whole point of creating DHS, uh, and that's the whole point of going with um, ICE in the interior. Um, but I have to say that a lot of the demonization of immigration and immigrants that we're seeing especially today has a phase that certainly predates 9-11. Uh, a lot of the reason that um, the government has many more legal weapons to deport people now has have to do with um, – uh, changes in laws that took place in the mid-90s, especially in 1996. And so if you're looking at the modern history just in this past generation of immigration enforcement, a lot of it stems from um, laws in 1996 that made it uh, easier to deport people but also to really um, uh, short-circuit due process in a lot of cases. So that happens in the mid-90s particularly in 1996. And then overlaid on top of that, you get the national security angle, mm -hmm. uh, which is a little bit different. Um, but it's a national security angle that's overlaid in, um, in 2000, in, uh, after 2001. And so right now you're seeing um, in the political rhetoric, especially out of Washington, you're seeing both of these strands. One is a criminalization story. And the other is a national security slash terrorism story. And so you're seeing um, both of those things. And I think one dates, as you say, clearly back to 9-11. But there's another that dates um, to the uh, – certainly to the mid-90s. And, you know, if you really think back even further in history, immigrants have always been scapegoats in, in one historical time or another. And uh, that's been true for much of the country. And so, you know, if you really want to look into the history of this, it it it, it goes back way before 9-11. It goes back way before the 90s. It really goes back to a lot of um, the racial restrictions that uh, were part of U.S. law um, for basically most of its history. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's something I, I, in more simple terms, like I tell people that 
know, first of all, now, right now, there isn't like a line that everybody can get in. So there's a lot of people who can, who cannot become American citizens or permanent residents. Mm-hmm. Um, and historically, like you said, there were a lot of restrictions on, on race. And depending on what race you were, you were eligible or not eligible to to become a citizen. But focusing on this conversation about enforcement, um, you said that prior to 9-11, there was an enforcement mechanism within Mm -hmm. INS, I'm assuming. Right. It was part of INS, yeah. I think most people are familiar with ICE in the context of deportations and ICE deporting people. But what are some of the other activities that ICE carries out? Well, ICE does a lot of different things. I think you're right that most of what has been has gotten attention recently has been uh, the process of what I think of as uh, arrests um, or even before arrests, figuring out who they want to go after. Um, and uh, some of that's going to involve uh, who's got a, um, you know, who has a prior order, a deportation order, or technically it's called a removal order, who those folks are. Um, there's a whole mechanism for arresting people. There's raids. The raids can be in homes or uh, workplaces or um, just really pretty much anywhere. There's a huge uh, detention apparatus. In other words, the people who are apprehended are um, put in essentially jails or prisons. I mean, and a lot of them are run by not by the government directly, but they're under private contract. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a mechanism, a kind of a pipeline, if you want to think of it that way, to, to actually physically uh, deport people. Um, and this is basically uh, interior enforcement. There's also some attention made um, to um, investigations of um, serious criminal activity in terms of um, trafficking, things like that. Although a lot of those uh, those parts of ICE apparently have been catching up a little bit on the the uh, the, the news on this that the uh, a lot of those people who are concerned with a cr- criminal serious criminal investigations associated with trafficking of human um, human trafficking and things like that are really concerned that the that the uh, the the attention to just sort of arresting people in their homes and communities mm-hmm. um, is taking away from some of the more serious work that they that they they're trying to do and and all this as you point out you know takes place in the Interior, it's really distinct from um, what takes place in the border, which interestingly, by the way, is is in two different setups on the border because in the border, um, the Customs and Border Protection, part of those folks are the ones that uh, you show your passport to if you come back into the country at the airport, um, for example. Uh, and then the Border Patrol is a separate group of people within that. So even the border agency is divided up into different groups. Hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about what those groups are? Well, one of them is um, the, the, the people who um, are doing inspections at port of entry. So these are the people who would do um, – they check your uh, – you know, they, they check your papers, your visa, or your passport if you show up at the airport um, and, and want to get into the country. That's true if you're a returning uh, U.S. citizen. It's also true if you're uh, coming to study or something like that. Um, and, uh, and they're also at the ports of entry at San Isidro or, or uh, wherever it may be. And then you have people on the border, and so the and the border patrol people um, are the ones who are trying to apprehend people who are trying to cross the border, whether it's um, you know crossing through the desert in in, in Arizona or New Mexico, or whether it's um, trying to climb the fence someplace. Hmm. One of the big reasons why abolish ICE, this hashtag has come about. Um, It's come as a result of all of the media coverage that has come from families being separated at the border. 
And I think one of the pieces of confusion, or at least that I've also, frankly, been confused about is when these families are presenting themselves at the border, who are the first people that they interact with? Is it Border Patrol? Is it ICE? Do at some point, do they change hands between Border Patrol and ICE? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, it really depends on the situation and the geography here. But um, let's say you're, and there are, of course, many uh, thousands of people in this situation and tens of thousands of people fleeing really desperate circumstances, um, violent conditions in Central America, and they've uh, decided that they're going to um, try to pursue uh, some, get some kind of protection um, in the United States. And so um, if they were to go to the port of entry in San Isidro and say, I'm turning myself in, I want to apply for asylum, uh, the person they'd be dealing with there on the U.S. government side would be an employee of um, Customs and Border Protection. And um, and so uh, that would happen if they were just, just walked up to the place where you would cross the border in a car, for example. Um, but let's say uh, you're in a different situation and the people we're talking about tra- who've traveled overland from Central America, let's say that they um, are not uh, in the border in an urban area south of San Diego, where San Isidro is, but instead uh, in the middle of the desert or someplace in the Rio Grande Valley, uh, then they would, uh, the first person they encounter from the U.S. government would likely be a border patrol officer, border patrol agent. And so that would be a different agency. Um, But uh, the U.S. law uh, requires them, requires the government employee, whoever it is, to put these folks into process where the law tests, you know, the strength of their uh, asylum claim. And so if they get put in detention, and is is often the case, and we're hearing a lot about family separation, um, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, part of the detention process, uh, those folks would eventually get transferred to ICE because uh, ICE is the one, the agency that is uh, operating these facilities. And these facilities are all around the country. Um, There's about, at any given night, um, 35,000 beds that are occupied. Um, and that, some of uh, those and some yeah. of those beds that are occupied are are Congress mandated quotas. That's right. I mean they're 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 mandated uh, in a di- in different respects um, and in, in terms of the, the the beds have to be uh, I mean Congress really said, you know we're, we we want you, the you know executive branch to to take seriously the 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 need to d- hold people. and so um, there's a mandate um, to to basically to fill these beds. Um, there's also categories of people that Congress said may not be released. Um, so that in itself accounts for um, a lot of people. Um, and it's very it's it's uh, there's a lot of uh, you know problems with this, right? Because if you're I mean if you have to meet a certain number of people that have to be in detention, then it's like you know you're, you're incentivized to right. detain people and. And if you can't find the the quote unquote criminals, well, then you're going to go after anyone who's right. undocumented. Yeah, it's it's also problematic just from the point of view of just how the government runs, because you're 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 seeing a lot of um, private prison companies build these uh, facilities uh, in various parts of the country, um, and uh, so there's there's this private profit being uh, made off of this. And then those same private prison companies are the ones donate money to politicians and their that's campaigns. Right. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's that's really a, a vicious cycle there. And then the other issue is that uh, there are a lot of alternatives to detention. Um, 
and I think that a lot of the f- people who've been advocating for more detention have um, essentially ignored or tried to ignore the the fact that a lot of the rate of showing up for your hearing is actually quite high, especially if you give people um, if, especially if people have legal representation because the system is so complicated um, that uh, the the success rates by getting a lawyer um, are shockingly higher by getting a lawyer. And the reason I say shockingly is that um, there's really no w- way to run a system of trying to protect people fleeing des- desperate circumstances if the one thing that really makes a difference is getting a lawyer. Um, mm-hmm. But over on top of that fact, the uh, involvement of a lawyer in the sense that, hey, I'm going to get a fair shot in court. I'm going to really have someone hear my story, an immigration judge, and someone's going to help me walk through that. That really gets people to show up. So the idea that people disappear um, in tremendous numbers is a myth. Yeah. So just to, just to back up on that point um, – for, for listeners that aren't as familiar with, with the process. So if someone um, presents themselves at the border to seek asylum or they uh, try to cross the border and they get detained um, and they end up at a detention center, there's a couple of things that can happen. One is they can be detained, they can be jailed for an indefinite amount of time, mm-hmm. um, or they can be released and they can be given a court hearing at some point in the future so they, they can present their asylum case uh, in front of a judge. Right. And what's happening right now is that more often than not, people are are being detained, they're being jailed uh, because, and, and people use this excuse of like, well, they're not going to come back. If we just, quote, catch and release they're not going to come back. They're not going to show up. But what you're saying mm-hmm. is that people will actually show up. They, there is a high percentage of people that do come back to their court hearings, especially when they have a lawyer and they feel like their case will have a good chance of being approved. Yeah. And sometimes in these cases, you have a combination of really bad events because if, if they're put in detention, it just makes it really hard to get a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, and and so, but if they were uh, allowed to uh, be released, you know, with a with a court date, um, then uh, then they would, in many cases, are able to um, uh, uh, move to a place where they're close to relatives, where they can get some help, um, and including legal help. Um, and you know, I'm not saying that everyone will show up. I mean, I do. I, I have to. You know, I would admit that there are people who who aren't going to show up. But I think numbers are really overblown um, of people who don't show up. And then the other part of this, and this is more from a rule of law and a justice point of view, I think it's very disturbing that, um, in effect, the prospect of um, indefinite detention. And recently we've seen the prospect that you're going to be separated from your children, uh, very young children, um, is really deterring people who should be getting asylum under U.S. and international law. It's deterring people from even making their case. Hmm. So so what's happening is detention is being used as a deterrent um, and uh, really uh, from that point of view to undermine the rule of law because because, um, the U.S. and by that I mean that U.S. law um, has incorporated or adopted international law obligations to to protect people who are fleeing persecution. I mean, also, I'm also not saying that everyone who's fleeing is going to qualify, but but a significant number will, and um, you're you're really um, subverting the system if you don't give people a fair shot at making their case. 
We'll be back with more of this Cricket Conversation with Hiroshi Motomura. Cricket Conversations is brought to you by The Farmer's Dog. Dog food companies claim to use all natural ingredients, but what kind of beef or carrots can sit on a shelf for years? We can't eat highly processed food every meal and be healthy. I've tried it, it didn't work. And neither can your dog. The healthiest food for your dog is real, fresh, unprocessed food. Introducing The Farmer's Dog, the company helping dogs live longer and healthier lives with fresh, ready-to-serve meals delivered directly to your door. And I wish they would have had this when my papa was still around. Clever Marketing has convinced pet owners to feed unhealthy, highly processed kibble, but The Farmer's Dog is different. Complete with a short questionnaire and a vet-developed meal plan is created just for your dog. Food arrives at your door in pre-portioned packs ready to open and pour. It's easy and it looks and smells like real food because it is real food for your dog. And food matters. Studies show that even adding fresh food to your dog's diet can reduce cancer risks by 90%. Start feeding your dog better food today. Get 50% off your two-week trial of fresh, healthy food at thefarmersdog.com slash crookedcombos. That is thefarmersdog.com slash crookedcombos. Plus, get your free shipping. Just go to thefarmersdog.com slash crookedcombos to get 50% off your first two weeks. That's thefarmersdog.com slash crookedcombos. One of the things that, that you know, you write about um, and you've written about in 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 your books and in in columns is this idea that some kind that some types of enforcement can actually undermine the rule of law, and if you take the precedent at its word that you know he's a rule of law precedent, um, but then you look at some of the activities that are happening within ICE uh, and Border Patrol and USCIS, it's a lot of the things, the policies and the policy changes that are happening seem like they're actually undermining the rule of law, right? Because you you had written this piece where you talked about. Um, how back in 2011, the then director of ICE, John Morton, set guidelines for enforcement um, around ICE and like who should be prioritized for deportation and arrest. And what was crazy to me when I read this piece was not just that ICE uh, officers opposed it, like the union opposed it, but then the union prevented ICE officers from going to training for those new guidelines. Yeah, I mean that was that was their initial position and but I think it's very emblematic of what was going on and that is that um when the Obama administration tried to set out some guidelines for how ICE should operate in the interior of the country, it basically said um there's some priority cases, you know, people who are national security risks and people with uh, serious criminal convictions and we we be meaning the people in Washington, we want the field offices and the agents to prioritize those things. Um and that would be the enforcement priorities. And so when the Obama administration came up with these guidelines, there's a lot of um resistance in the field as you said, and I think that that reflected the idea that uh people in the field should be allowed to Make decisions that 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 they um, that they want to make, and so I think that what Obama was trying to do uh, in the interior was to rationalize and really bring some kind of order and transparency uh, to the system to make sure that uh, 
that uh, ICE officers were not, for example, just um, uh, racially profiling in order to make their arrests. Um, and I'm not saying that every ICE officer was racially profiling, but the problem was that you'd never know unless you had these guidelines and some transparency. And so that's what's happening. And I think that's a lot of what's behind the abolish ICE movement today. It's really, um, you know, that could, that hashtag can mean a lot of different things, but at its core, um, I don't personally see it as a um, as a call to uh, for open borders. I personally don't see it as a call to end enforcement altogether, but rather as a call to do it the right way. Now, having said that, I mean this the the, the abolish ice um, hashtag in, includes a lot of people who who uh, who have very different kinds of views, and some who are using that hashtag for. Uh, and have different goals in mind, but I think at its core, it's really uh, a call for um, to abolish a certain kind of rogue agency mentality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, there are a lot of issues with right, with ICE, right? One which you kind of alluded to, which is this this sort of um, almost like discrimination and who the people that they're going after. Because if there are no guidelines. And anyone who's undocumented essentially becomes a priority. So that's 11 million people who all of a sudden are priorities for for deportation. And, you know, I always tell people, like, if some random people are walking down the street and it's me and a white person, like, who do you think they're going to ask to see their papers? Right. And like the reality is that they're probably going to ask me because I'm brown and 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 you see that happening more and more. You see um, there's been a lot of uh, case studies about uh, detention centers and how horrible they are and women getting abused uh, in Mm -hmm. detention centers, women miscarrying because they're not giving they're not they're not given the the proper medical um, treatment that that pregnant women need while they're in detention. I mean, the fact that we have pregnant women in detention, like, first of all, just drives me crazy. But um, so there are a lot of issues with ICE and um, and I agree that there's a lot of things that need to change about ICE, uh, whether it means that the entire agency goes away and is replaced with something else. Um, I don't know what it is. And you're right that this hashtag is being used in so many different ways. So I, I wanted to ask you whether... Um, whether you think that there is anything detrimental to this hashtag, um, because one of the things I've seen is the hashtag being used against us almost against the immigrant rights movement, saying that you know we're that we are calling for open borders. That you know the president tweeted a bunch of things like uh, Democrats are weak on crime and their love is some MS thirteen, even though ICE isn't really even focusing on MS thirteen um, gang members and a lot of MS thirteen gang members are U.S. citizens, so. But then mm-hmm. maybe that's a topic for another quicker conversation. Yeah. Um, so, do you think that there is anything detrimental to using this hashtag, and 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 the fact that it's not being used in a consistent way? Well, you know, like a lot of uh, political hashtags, or I guess they used to call them political slogans, but I guess slogans have become hashtags these days. But <laughs> but um, you know, it can mean a lot of th- different things to a lot of people, and it's energized a lot of uh, politics. And I think. Just having public attention to this issue is is, is a really uh, good thing just for the sake of public debate and calling attention to, to some problems we have. Um, but I think it, it is a double-edged sword because, um, you know, it reminds me a little bit um, of uh, the uh, word sanctuary um, mm-hmm. you know, because on the one hand, um, 
sanctuary, I think, stands for a lot of things that are that are uh, positive. In fact, I think it does stand in many ways for the rule of law because a lot of cities that are calling themselves sanctuary cities are really saying um, – we think the rule of law means consistent law enforcement, non-discriminatory law enforcement, transparent law enforcement, and so that's what we mean when we, make, we mean when we say sanctuary. We just don't want you to, you know, be profiling these neighborhoods and and um, undermining police protection for uh, minor, minority communities in particular. Um, on the other hand, I think a lot of the opponents of uh, of uh, sanctuary cities are using that word uh, in some ways to imply that the sanctuary movement is uh, lawless or just just uh, just mere resistance uh, without principle. And I, I think that's an unfair characterization, but I think that's what's happening to some extent with the sanctuary movement. Um, and abolish ICE is kind of the same thing, but he, perhaps even more so uh, because I think that is you know as I said that. For me, the idea of abolish ICE is uh, if, if this would be too long for a hashtag, it would, it would be <laughs> abolish ICE as an agency that fosters rogue behavior by field agents who are going to be discriminating um, and acting in a lawless way without ever getting caught. That, that, that doesn't hashtag. even fit. That doesn't even fit in a tweet. That's <laughs> that's right. That's, <laughs> that's my hashtag. more like two hundred and forty characters. But, but abolish ICE is really a way of saying that, right? And yeah. so, um, and so, I think the word ICE in abolish ICE is not being used uh, at its core as abolish, uh, not even to say abolish enforcement, but um, but rather say there's a right way to do it. Um, and it's not the way it's 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 being done. But you're absolutely right. There is a, a political uh, downside to this because there's going to be this um, this idea that if you're um, if you don't like the way ICE is set up, that somehow um, you're you know I don't know pro criminal or something like that. I mean, I think that this is one of these cases where you've got a lot of misinformation out there. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I hope that uh, a lot of people, most people, are, uh, you know, can, can see, see through that. And I think that, um, you know, the family separation issue has become crucial or uh, 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 maybe it's even a watershed moment in that regard because I think that um, to the extent that abolish ICE means let's stop this business of – um, detaining people, detaining people, and kidnapping children. their children. Yeah, and I mean to get people to to to, to not um, you know get what they're supposed to get under U.S. international law. Then that really becomes um, then abolish ICE. You know, really becomes abolish a way of thinking about enforcement. And, but you're absolutely right that there's a there's a there's a, a, a there's a down there's a downside to this. Um, and yet and yet I think it, it, people have coalesced around the idea that this isn't the right way to do it. Some of this going back to what you were saying earlier is a bit of a legacy of the post 9-11 drive to create DHS because one of the things that was um, always a a hallmark of of the Immigration Naturalization Service, INS, is that it was an agency that had an enforcement uh, piece that became ICE um, but uh, and Border Patrol and and the the people at the ports of entry. But it also uh, was an agency that was the place you went to get a green card. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I remember uh, my own family went down to to the INS office and got interviewed for, you know, citizenship. And and so it wasn't always an agency where the service side helped temper the enforcement. 
you know, the service side was reminders of the enforcement people that they weren't just about enforcement. They were really right. about welcoming new Americans. You know, and then and then the people who were who were um, who were uh, administering the process to give people citizenship and greed cards. You know, they were reminded. Uh, by the presence of the people who were involved in enforcement, there there are a few cases that maybe shouldn't be granted, you know. And so there was a bit of a uh, both sides were um, were kind of tempering the other. And the distinction between benefits and and enforcement is really hard to draw anyway. And so there was this agency. There was a little. Some people thought it really had a bit of a split personality, but it wasn't <laughs> such a bad thing. And so what happens is after nine eleven, this gets back to your original. We were talking about earlier after nine eleven. What happens is that it gets split up. So then the it, it's a system where it's easier to to be hyper uh, enforcement oriented, and uh, and then the other part of this is budget because uh, the money has gone to uh, the enforcement, and yeah. uh, Congress has essentially set up a system where uh, the application side of this has to fund itself through application fees, but then the application fees have gotten astronomical. Right. For working people, and so um, you know, so there was this whole sense that the that the that the people who are the part of the what used to be the INS, where there was trying to basically build a stronger America through immigration, is the part that that got the short end of the budget. Cricket Conversations is brought to you by Quip. of us don't refresh our bristles every three months, let alone visit the dentist every six months. That's why you need Quip to put a necessary yet annoying aspect of your personal care on autopilot. Quip's subscription model is a thoughtful, inexpensive solution for people who want to make it easy to keep up with simple habits like brushing your teeth. Let Quip do the thinking for you when it comes to your teeth. So what makes Quip different? For starters, Quip is an electronic toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes, while still packing just the right amount of vibrations to help you clean your teeth. Quip's built-in timer helps you clean for the dentist-recommended two minutes with guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides. Next, Quip subscription plans are for your health, not just your convenience. They deliver new brush heads on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. I can kind of hear like um, Pitbull doing the Mr. Worldwide. Quip also comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror and unsticks to use as a cover for hygienic travel wherever you take your teeth. And you take your teeth everywhere, so... Quip. And finally, everyone loves Quip. They were on Oprah's O-List, name one of Time's best inventions, and it's the first subscription electric toothbrush accepted by the American Dental Association. Plus, they're backed by a network of over 20,000 dentists and hygienists, and hundreds of thousands of happy brushers use Quip every day. Get your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash crooked combos. Spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash Cricket Combos. Whew, I got through all that. How about Captain Crunch's Crunch Berries with breakfast? Whoa, Dad, we're on. Crunch Island. <gasps> it's Jean foot. <laughs> and he stole our crunch. Quick, the zip line. He's getting away. Throw our last Crunch Berry. No! 
No one steals my crunch berries. I think you mean my crunch berries. Choose your own crunch venture with Captain Crunch. It's not just with ICE that you see the anti-immigrant agenda coming through, right? I mean, you see it within USCIS also. I mean, just the fact that we— That's true. Even from from small—I mean, I don't think it's a small thing, but from things like removing nation of immigrants from the mission of USCIS to now having a denaturalization task force. So, you know, where before, uh, I think over the last— Three decades, there have been like 11 cases, denaturalization cases that the government pursued a year. And now uh, between ICE and USCIS, something like over $200 million are going to be spent in trying to find people to denaturalize. So, right. <laughs> I mean, this is, yeah. you know, it's not just ICE that it's like rogue and 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 really looking at immigrants as 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 criminals. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right to point out to point that out about um, some of the trends in USCIS. I do think that the removal of the idea of nation of immigrants from the website it seems like a small thing, but it's hugely important from the the way the agency um, expresses what its mission is to the public and also internally. Um, what I'm afraid of is 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 not just um, the um, uh, this denaturalization task force per se. Uh, I mean that that that's troubling for, for all kinds of reasons in and of itself. But actually, the bigger problem is that it creates a climate of fear, so that people who are fully entitled to citizenship, for example, uh, entitled in the sense that they've met all the requirements and they're paying their fees and they met all the pass the test and that kind of thing, or getting a green card, they're going to be deterred from applying for the things that Congress said that they should get because of some fear that. Um, that something that they, you know, left out inadvertently, even on an, an application, that kind of thing will be used to um, not only deny them, but um, to lead to the deportation. And that may be a, uh, not necessarily a, a, a factually grounded in every case, but I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's a climate. Uh, it's either a climate of fear or at least of apprehension, and it means that people um, who are who would, under any other circumstances, say, "I want to join this country and be a citizen"? They're 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 turned away, and 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 I think that the what you're seeing is kind of a callous um, disregard of of actually, it's the rule of law in that part of process, part of the process too. Yeah, I mean, I was um, I was in D.C. a couple of weeks ago giving like a welcome. Um, I was like the keynote speaker at a naturalization ceremony. Mm-hmm. And it, for me, it was sort of like this big full circle thing because I was undocumented for 15 years. And then here was like a formerly undocumented person, now a U.S. citizen, like welcoming mm-hmm. a set of new American citizens. And like, but as soon as I left, I started reading all these things about this denaturalization task. Where, and I'm like, what the F? Because you know, we've been through years of background checks and fingerprintings and interviews. And it seems like it doesn't matter how much we do or how right we do it, you know, whether it's from presenting yourself at the border to seek asylum and now you're being jailed for doing the legal thing to do, which is to present yourself at the border to seek asylum. And that mm-hmm. is a, a legal thing to do to applying for citizenship after you've had a green card for 
three to five years. So you've already waited in line, as people often say, wait in line. You did that. You've done everything right. But even at the point of 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 naturalizing, there is still this fear that is there something in my application? Did I do did I do everything right? Like, should I even apply if this is if this can be taken away from me and then I can be deported? Maybe I'll just stay a green card holder and not become right. a citizen. And then I won't become a voter. And then, That's you right. know, so that's right. And there's, I think there's, there's a lot of that. I mean, there's at least a, a sort of a, a disregard of those consequences uh, on the part of this administration. In other words, that um, they either don't care or— uh, Or they're doing you know, it intentionally. Or they're doing it intentionally. And in many respects, this is, um, um, this is evident in taking the nation of immigrants um, idea out of the, the website, but it's also in some of the— um, just it, whether it's the rhetoric or the legal proposals to try to cut um, legal immigration, I think what we're seeing is really uh, a reaction against a lot of the uh, demographic change in this country that's taken place ding, since ding, 1965. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> yeah, yep. I mean it's it's uh, you know um, immigration to the United States was was um, explicitly racially restricted until 1965. Um, in fact, um, racial restrictions on becoming U.S. citizen uh, weren't uh, taken out of U.S. law until 1952. And so um, during that entire period, um, until 65, there was an attempt that was very explicit in the laws to try to preserve the ethnic mix of the United States as it existed um, in the late 1800s. Uh, in other words, to keep it as uh, not only European, but to keep it uh, Northern and Western European. And so, you know, what you're seeing right now is uh, some some of a nostalgia um, for the uh, so-called good old days um, when um, uh, America was much more um, European. And you're seeing this sentiment in everything from the president. Um, on down, and so that's that's also, I think, what you're what you're what you're you're describing in in that that sense of you know what you experience at that naturalization um, ceremony. I mean, I have to admit that I, um, you know, I, I went through a natural my I went through a naturalization process. That my mother did too, and so I understand you know what that's um, what that's like, um, both from the perspective of the precariousness you feel in the interview, but also the. The, the sense that uh, now I can really contribute to this country mm-hmm. um, and, um, you know, we try to do that. And, yeah. and, um, and having that cut off um, is, uh, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a deeply troubling thing. And, you know, you mentioned the, 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 the people who could get arrested, um, you know, by ICE uh, uh, because they're undocumented here. And you mentioned 11 million people. But, but of course, I mean, I know you know this, but just to, 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 to underscore the point is that uh, – it's not just 11 million people. It's it's also all their citizen relatives and children and parents and brothers and sisters. And so we're talking about um, not just people who are not citizens, um, not just people who are undocumented, but but all the people who are part of their communities, many of whom are U.S. citizens in many respects, um, in many cases, uh, long-time U.S. citizens. Yeah. No, that's right. I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that because we've also – you know, seen a lot of um, reports even of people who have green cards, people who are in the country legally, who are still being targeted for um, for for deportation and even U.S. citizens who have been wrongly uh, deported. So I'm, I'm glad that you that you said that. Um, so 
I mean, I could keep talking to you for like a really long time, but just for the sake of time, I I always like to finish my cricket conversations asking my guests um, what gives them hope. Um, so what gives you hope for a better a better immigration system? Well, the um, you know, this is a this is a tough moment in which to have hope because I think that the onslaught on uh, immigrants. Um, and not, not just on immigrants. Uh, it's not just bad on immigrants, but it's also on America's position in the world. Um, but I, what gives me hope is that um, there are, are many people uh, in this country who understand that uh, what's going on is um, is a, a reaction to a lot of uh, change, positive change that's taken place in the country. Um, I'll use the benchmarks for since the 1960s, since the civil rights movement, since um, – the end of racial discrimination and immigration laws, um, and uh, this country has changed uh, tremendously in, 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 in just just who's here and who's welcome here, and and I think that that's a um, that's that's a force, uh, the force of people, um, not just at a national level but also at the community level. Um, that um, you have to sort of stop and think about it, but when you do, I think it becomes obvious how powerful that is, and that's what. Gives me hope. Some of it's at the level of uh, of, um, of voting and 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 traditional political things like that. But a lot of it is also at the level of the resilience of um, of, of people in in everyday communities and everyday lives to understand that um, a lot of um, a lot of uh, what's made this country uh, great has come through immigration over the years, and uh, and that's what gives me hope that that um, that that is a that is a theme in American history that um, taking nation of immigrants out of the USAS website is not going to change. Yeah, I like that. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you enjoy that. Uh, I was taking notes like crazy, even as I was speaking to Hiroshi. Um, and before I close off, I just want to take a page out of Dan's book and tell you about my new book called Someone Like Me. It's going to be out September 18th, so you can pre-order it now. Um, I've been thinking a lot about family separation at the border and how awful it is, and also just thinking about my own separation from my family. We weren't separated at the border, but we were separated for eight years, and so this issue of separation from families, one that is really dear to me and that I talk a lot about in my new book. So check it out. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation. Make sure that you rate us on iTunes or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Tell a friend about Crooked Conversations and we'll see you next week.